Over the past month or two, the question I've been asked, I think more than any other question, is something like this. Where do you think this is all going? How is it going to turn out? Sometimes it's very clearly not a question looking for an answer. It's a question making a statement. I wonder how this is going. I wonder what I need to do to protect myself. But sometimes it's like, I want to know your opinion. And I feel like saying, why are you asking me? What do I know? Or sometimes, I wonder if I should say, what are you really asking? What's the question behind your question? So what is it? What is the question behind the question? Isn't it, are we going to make it? Will we make it as a country? Or are we saddling the next generation with mountains of debt that we'll never get out of? And, and what does that mean for my own future? How long will I have a job? I don't have a job and I've reached the end of my cash reserves. What's going to happen? I'm not getting what I need out of my school. or My kids are not getting what they need out of their school, the way it's working or not working. How might that limit my future or their future? Is my marriage going to make it? We were on the edge before and COVID tensions are just tipping us over. What's your am I going to make it question? And more importantly, how is your response in your heart, in your mind, playing out in your attitudes, in your behavior to that question? For some of us, it's like, I don't know if anyone else is going to make it, but I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure I will be standing stronger when it's over. I don't know why everyone is so fearful. I'm tough. I'm not afraid. We don't even realize that what's showing is not our toughness. It's our total self-centeredness. Or maybe we do realize it and we just don't care. How do you deal with it when those questions begin to emerge in your mind? Just push them out, blow them off, let them wipe you out with fear and worry, let them make you even more driven? What if, what if we used those questions in our minds as a signal to find our way back to God every day? What if we used them to engage the finding your back, way back to God process we've been talking about, which is, well, Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. We demolish every argument in our, in our own minds and, and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. The lies we have come to believe about God. And we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. We identify those arguments, those pretentious thoughts, the, the Romans 1 lies that we have exchanged in our minds for the truth about God and number two, we make our mind line up with the truth about God that we need to embrace, to rest in. We do a reverse exchange, the truth about God for the lies we slip into believing. Can you see how all kinds of scripture talk about this exchange process? We've, we've processed three truths about God to this point. God is great, so I don't have to be in control. God is good. So I don't have to look elsewhere. God is glorious. So I don't have to fear others. And today, God is grace.
the truth about God, not an attribute about God, but the truth about how he applies to me, pours out for me all of his attributes, his greatness, his, his greatness, his goodness, his grace, is that God is gracious. It's because God is grace that his greatness and absolute power is not a threat to me. It is security for me. It's because God is grace that his goodness is what I will always, always get from him. It's because God is, is grace that his glory is what he shares with me freely. And if I can't see that, if I just can't seem to experience that in any way and in every way, the first question I need to ask myself is, what is the lie I have exchanged for the truth about the grace of God. And yes, we planned this entire series so we could talk about grace on this Thanksgiving Sunday because the attitude that is behind Thanksgiving, the heart soil in which Thanksgiving emerges is gratitude. Thanksgiving is not about a list of things to be thankful for, although that's a good place to start. Thanksgiving is more than saying thank you. Thanksgiving is about an attitude of gratitude that helps us, well, as Paul says in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, be thankful in all circumstances for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Do you know what that word thankful comes from? It comes from the word grace. Gratitude is our response when we really know grace. Not giving thanks for all things, but in all things, respond with gratitude, with grateful hearts, with grace-filled hearts. Because even though you are in that circumstance, that circumstance does not have to define you, to limit you, or threaten you. Because more than being in that circumstance, you are in Christ Jesus. And because you are in Christ, you have strength to endure, to love, to serve, to give, to die to myself because of, as Paul says in 2 Timothy, the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Do you know God's grace in that way? The one idea, the, the one truth God's story reveals is the truth that changes everything. And that's grace. Jesus is God's grace to us and for us. That's what blew the mind of the apostles. And John says in John chapter 1, the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son of the father who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace upon grace. How did Jesus bring grace? 2 Corinthians chapter 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich, filled with his grace. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about specifically how he did that. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, through Christ's death, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
So in somewhat of a simplistic way, let's talk about what grace is. Let's compare it to some other words. Judgment is getting what I really deserve. Mercy is not getting what I do deserve. But grace is getting everything I don't deserve. What is grace? One way of putting it is that grace is everything God is, everything God has given to me to become everything I was created to be and called by God to be. Grace is, well, it's the foundation for our standing before God. The grace in which we now stand, Paul says in Romans 5, Grace is the basis for our, the, the, my core identity for who I am. In 1 Corinthians 15, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Grace is the standard for our behavior. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we behaved in the world by the grace of God. Grace transforms our vision for what we can be. God called us to a holy calling by his own purpose and grace, 2 Timothy 2.9. 2 Timothy 2.1, it is our strength, our empowerment for living. He says we, we were strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And it informs the way we speak. Let your speech, Paul says in Colossians 4, always be seasoned with grace. And it is, with, it, it is what we are called to serve others with. Serve one another as good managers of God's multifaceted grace in 1 Peter chapter 1. And grace is our sufficiency, our enoughness. My grace, 2 Corinthians 2.9, is sufficient for you. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And grace guides our response to difficulty and suffering. We get, Paul's, or Hebrews says, grace to help in time of need. And in 1 Peter, when you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace will himself restore, strengthen, confirm, and establish you. And grace is our mission. As Paul says in Acts chapter 20, to testify to the grace of God. It is what we look forward to participating in fully forever. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, says Peter. No wonder Peter simply calls him the God of all grace. Do you know how totally out of this world amazing, unbelievably powerful grace is? You see, we, we so easily get sucked into a, a shallow concept of grace. Let's talk a little bit for what, about what grace is not. Grace is not just a free pass, a mulligan. Oh, well, let's exercise a little bit more grace here. It's not what God says. Grace, by definition, is not a little bit. And there's no way grace is free. It is God absorbing the cost of my failure and at the same time restoring to me all of the privileges and status that I had that I'll miss because of my failure. It's, it's as if that failure never happened. A free pass is God saying, yeah, I saw your sin, but I'll just overlook it, ignore it. A free pass would be the easy way out. Do you ever, do you ever take the way, easy way out on addressing someone's failure? Just overlook it. 
takes too much effort to address it. We cannot be what we are called to be, sharers of God's glory, by simply getting a free pass. Grace costs. It costs God big time. As someone has put it, again, somewhat simplistically, but very clearly, God, grace is God's redemption and richness at Christ's expense. There's something else grace is not. It's not a free pass, but it's, it's, it's also way more than tolerance. In a pluralistic world, we, we're taught that tolerance must be the way we think about everything and everyone. Now, I'm not saying tolerance is, not, is a bad thing. But if tolerance is all we have, there's no such thing as justice. And there's no such thing as anybody doing anything wrong. There's no such thing as sin. Grace is not tolerance. It's costly. But it's freeing forgiveness, which means I am free first to admit to myself the depth of my failures, my deficits, my shortcomings. You see, a free pass and tolerance simply excuses us. Grace has the power to change us. It changes us at that inner deep thinking process level. How does it do that? How does the truth of God's grace speak to the lie I believe in my heart about God? Well, let's go back to the original lie. In the original perfect garden, the lie Adam and Eve were sucked in by the evil one to believe was that what they really needed was independence from God. They didn't need to submit to God. And what does independence mean? What is the impact of being independent? Of making my own choices, setting my own direction, taking charge of my own life. Do you know what independence means? Independence means I now have to, I have to prove myself, protect myself, preserve myself, and promote myself. Can you see that? If I cut myself off from God, from being in and under God, now I have to prove that I can do it. Prove to whom? Well, prove to God. And, and we form our own understandings of God to make that possible. Prove to others. And we get very defensive when anyone dares poke a hole in the image we're trying to portray of ourselves. Because the number one person we are trying to prove ourselves to is ourselves. Have you ever heard someone say rather forcefully, I don't have to prove myself to anyone? I know you've never said it yourself, but, but you've heard someone say it, haven't you? What's your first thought? Your first thought when someone says that, it's, wow, you're really trying hard to convince yourself of that, aren't you? Right? That's why Paul's statement about God's grace in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 totally opened my eyes. And, and well, I was going to say it changed me, but it, it gave me insight and power to begin a process that by God's grace, I'm still continuing to work on. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God 
that was with me. In my graduate school studies, I was a major in New Testament studies, which meant that I had to understand the Greek language, and one of my tasks was to translate for myself the entire New Testament from the Greek language, the original language it was written, into English. Now, you don't have to know the original languages to understand the Bible. There are a whole lot of good, solid translations of the Bible in English. But one of the things I discovered was that the value of, of learning another language, the language in which something is written and translated, is that it forces you to do that, what you should do when you're studying something in your own language. It forces you to slow down, to absorb it, to think about every word, to think about what it really means. I just completed an undergraduate degree in social sciences, steeped in the, the me-centeredness and the got to accept myself the way I am, the I'm okay, you're okay kind of thinking. I, I didn't buy it. And it, it, I was sort of more in the I'm not okay, you're not okay camp. And, and as I read this verse, I thought, by the grace of God, I am what I am. What? It can't be saying God, God made me this way, so I just have to accept myself, and you do too, can it? But as we should always do when we interpret anything we read, I suddenly for the first time saw this verse in the light of what he has just said. This church in Corinth, after he had left them, has been sucked in by some other teaching, by some teachers that said, why would you believe Paul? He's not an authentic apostle. He didn't even follow Jesus. He persecuted Jesus. And Paul is writing them, and he has just said, if you're ranking people by who they are, let me just put it out there. I'm at the bottom. I'm the least, the lowest of all the apostles. There's no human that would have chosen me to be on the apostles team. There is no selection committee that would have hired me for this position. But God, in his grace, and by his grace, and for the glory of his grace, chose me to show, to put on display, as he says in Ephesians chapter 2, the riches of his grace in Christ Jesus. I am what I am by the grace of God. It is grace that elevates me into somebody I am not by nature and do not deserve to be. It is grace, he says, that motivates me to work harder than everyone else, but not compare myself to anyone else. It is grace, the grace of God that is in me that empowers me to not have to prove myself, to protect myself, to preserve myself, and to promote myself, but to demonstrate in everything I do the goodness, the greatness, the glory of the good news of God in Jesus. Do you know that kind of grace? I haven't read the book, but I read a few quotes from a book by Max Lucado this week, Grace, More Than We Deserve, Greater Than We Imagine. Here are some of the things he says in there. God answers the mess of life with one word, grace. Plunge a sponge into Lake Erie. Do you absorb every drop? Take a deep breath. Did you suck the oxygen out of the atmosphere? Pluck a pine needle from a tree in Yosemite? Did you deplete the forest of its foliage? 
Watch, watch an ocean wave crash against the beach. Will there never be another one? Of course there will. No sooner will one wave crash into the sand than another appears, then another and another. This is a picture of God's sufficient grace. Grace, he says, is simply another word for God's tumbling, rumbling reservoir of strength and protection. It comes at us not occasionally or miserly, but constantly and aggressively wave upon wave. Grace upon grace. We've barely regained our balance from one breaker and then, bam, there comes another one. God's grace, he says, has a drenching about it, a wildness about it, a whitewater riptide burn, turn yourself upside downness about it. Grace comes after you. It rewires you from insecure to God secure, from regret riddled to better because of it, from afraid to die to ready to fly. Grace is the voice that calls us to change and then gives us the power to pull it off. Do you know that grace in Jesus Christ. Because God is grace, I no longer need to prove myself. I no longer need to promote myself. I no longer need to protect myself. I no longer need to preserve myself, nor do I need to perfect myself. Can you imagine living like that completely? That's grace. For the last few minutes of our time, we're going to look at a chapter of the book by the Apostle James, chapter 4 in the book of James. Turn there. It's one of the later letters in the New Testament. Take your Bible up and, and let's whip through chapter 4 really quickly. He takes this truth about the grace of God for us, to us, in us, and he helps to, to see how it addresses the lies we believe and how to choose the exchange of that lie for God's truth. In the middle of the chapter, verse 6, he put it as simply and clearly and powerfully as any statement in Scripture about grace. A statement I heard my mother say out loud in response to many difficult moments in her life. He has never promised us a rose garden, she said, but he promises in every circumstance to give more grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. Grace is the only ultimate renewable resource. So when was the last time you told that to your heart? When you felt you needed to protect yourself, prove yourself, preserve yourself, promote yourself, or perfect yourself? I don't have to, because he gives more grace. I live in the environment of overcoming grace. I don't have to, but as I have to step out and do it, he will do it in me and through me. When you felt you just couldn't do it and said to your heart, no, I can't do that. He gives more grace and, and just allowed yourself to rest in that. Look at the context of this statement in James chapter 4. It's in the context of, of the, the, the normal way, well, as he says it, the way of the world. In other words, life independent from God. The lie Right? The first three verses, he talks about it. The lie, I need it for myself, I deserve it, I have to have it, and I will fight tooth and nail to keep it. That kind of world. Verses 1 to 3. Not, or, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you fight and kill. You covet, but you cannot get one you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do it with wrong motives 
that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. A key sign that we do not know grace is gracelessness in our relationships. Comparing what others get away with, what others get, what others do with what I get, with what they get. Getting frustrated, fighting, making sure that I get what I want. The grace of God tells me that's not true. It's a lie. Do you not know that you live in grace? You have it all in Jesus. God's grace is bigger. God's grace is stronger. God's grace is for me and God's grace is in me. God allows us to confront the independence lies that I'm conditioned to live by. And how does grace allow us to respond? No, let me say it more strongly. How does God's grace expect us and require us to respond? But he gives more grace. Verse 6, that is why Scripture said God opposes the proud. The proud is the independent. The proud is the I can do it. The proud is you got to look what I bring to the table. The proud is the fighting for what I deserve. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God allows us to get off the exhausting treadmill, the intensifying flywheel of having to prove myself, promote myself, fight to protect myself and preserve myself, and simply humble myself before God, who does all of these things for me. Humble myself and reverse the lie they believed in the garden and submit to the God who allows everything to happen for my good. Does that mean that we do not work for change? No. But it gives us wisdom to know when to do it, how to do it, with love, at the right time, with gentle confidence, with patience. And then he gives this bullet point list in the rest of, of the paragraph, to verse 13, of, of how we will live when we live in the environment of the richness of grace. As we go through this bullet point list, ask yourself, when was the last time my awareness of the grace of God for me allowed and inspired and prompted me to do this? These are the things that grace requires. Verse 7 of chapter 4 of James. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the evil one, the devil, and he will flee from you. What does it mean to resist the devil? Well, first of all, and most of all, it means to resist his lie that you can live independent of God, that you deserve it, that you need it, that you are not getting it in your marriage, in your work environment, in your church environment, that it's going to be better somewhere else. That's what got us into this mess. Grace thinking exposes those lies and invites us to something bigger and graver. Resist the lies of the evil one in your heart. Verse 8 and 9, come near to God. He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. So what's with that? Well, those are all pictorial, descriptive words of what the Bible calls repentance. 
Repent before God and people. Repentance, as we said several weeks ago, is not simply being sorry for something I did, but grieving, as he talks about it here, that, that I'm still the kind of person who does those things, even though I claim to know the grace of God. Be open before God and others. Repent. In verse 10, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Let God bring it to you in his time, his way. By his grace, he will give you all you need. Verse 11, brothers and sisters, do not slander anyone. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them, speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? What it's saying is take God's grace and extend it to the per person who seems to be the one in your way, the one who's blocking what you think we deserve you deserve. It's the same thing as Paul said in Romans chapter 12, where he talks about li living as a holy sacrifice. And then he says towards the end of the chapter, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap coals of fire on his head. That, that's grace. Give him what he doesn't deserve. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So how and to whom is God calling you right now to live out his grace to? Have you come to know the God of all grace? The God who in Jesus and only in and through Jesus does not just ignore our deep realities of inferiority, of guilt, of shame. He comes in Jesus and in his grace lifts us up, moves us to see that it's possible and empowers us as we humble ourselves before him to live out the grace of God. You see, in the end, it's all about your hands. In poker terminology... Your hands are the tell. Your hands reveal what's going to happen. Grace allows you to live with open hands. Open to receive, to get whatever God gives and realize that what he gives is grace. In spite of, even because of, whatever life gives us. Open hands, open, open to release to others God's grace into environments that are always less than we want. Marriages, friendship circles, work environments, churches. Open hands to unleash in our environments, not our frustrations, not to inflict on our environments what we think we need, we need to bring to prove to everyone that we are somebody. No, to release the richness, the fullness of grace, because in the end, it's all about the hands, the hands of God the Son, pierced in shame and judgment on a cross to bring us into the richness of grace. In the end, it's all 
about the hands. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though, though he was rich, he became poor so that you through his poverty become, can become rich. You see, there's only two ways to live. We can live by gratitude with open hands or we can live by grasp, holding tight, grabbing more, fighting, pushing off, Anyone who threatens, proving, promoting, protecting, preserving myself, your hands are the tail. Are you living by gratitude? Or are you living by grasp? Oh, where is this COVID season going? It doesn't matter, friends. Are we going to make it? We're going to make it better, stronger, richer. If we use this season to grow deeper in living the grace exchange, he always gives more grace. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we have lived with a mindset of scarcity especially in this time, it's been exposed in many of us. And Father, I pray that today again, we might look past the circumstances our life in our life and have hearts of gratitude in all things because we have a Father who loves us and in His grace, we know that His power, His greatness, and his goodness and his glory are for us. Thank you, Jesus, for your hands, which can make our hands hands of grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.